This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Elizabeth Dennehy. I played Lieutenant Commander Shelby on Star Trek Next Generation, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to another cup of Earl Grey listeners, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Amy Nelson, and joined with me today are the fabulous Richard Marquez and the wonderful Justin Ozer. Richard, how are you doing? I feel fabulous. I'm I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm good. And Justin, how about yourself? Uh, feeling great. Glad to be here talking about Next Generation. I think we have an interesting show in store for you today. Oh so. boy, do we ever. But before we get started, we wanted to talk about um, some feedback on the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. And it comes from Earl Grey episode 224. This is our favorite character moments from season four. Wes Huntington says, excellent choices, though I tend to skip identity crisis. It is, in my opinion, opinion, not one of the strongest episodes of season four. Too weird for me. My choice for a character moment in the season is from The Loss, in which Troy tries to resign her commission and Picard tries to reassure her that she's been an advantage to him because most of Starfleet vessels don't have a Betazoid counselors, instead have human ones, and that she should remain in her role on the Enterprise despite losing her empathic abilities. That's a great scene in and of itself. My honorable mention would be the last scene in The Wounded, that we'll-be-watching scene with Picard and Golmaset. I heard the humming Amy Nelson. Excellent. You wanted compliments. You got one now. Well, thank you, Wes. Those are good uh, picks. I, too, love the loss, of course. It's a Troy episode. Uh, so thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, thanks, Wes. Those are great choices. And uh, you pointed out Amy's humming. People did actually listen. There were a couple other <laughs> listeners that commented, and Brandon Shamatala sent us a message. So people do listen to the end. And it's worth it. It's worth it if you don't already do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to shell out some money for that bet I did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Checks in the mail, right, Richard? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. It's in the mail. I promise. <laughs> uh, Robert Joseph said, family, great episode. As a veteran, it speaks to me, especially when you are reunited with family. You have changed, but they have remained the same, and, all, and you, all have, you all have to discover your new normal. I completely agree. I, uh, I mean, definitely coming home from the military. I, I definitely agree uh, that everything else has changed, and you have, and you know, you have to cope with it and, and deal with the new normal. So, yeah, thank you for your comment, Robert. Yeah, and I, I think I don't know how often we actually think of you know people that are in Starfleet, you know, coming home as as veterans as much, but definitely in Picard's case, that's true because he's been through this horrific conflict. So, yeah, definitely appreciate that that perspective. It's very interesting because as the longer that I'm in and watching Star Trek, especially Next Generation, like family gets more and more praise. Um, just more recently, I think because of that great character development that we see uh, Jean-Luc go through. And it, I think it hits so many people on, on personal levels that it's really is becoming an episode that people really love and can relate to. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of that, uh, Tim Han says, no arguments with anyone over how much of a superb episode and crowning performance it was with Picard and family. 
That last scene when he totally opens up to his brother how he was powerless to stop the Borg at Wolf 359 was truly moving. As I'm well into my own rewatch of season 4, two recent back-to-back episodes I watched concerning Data in both Devil's Due and Clues were terrific. As Devil's Due was a reworked episode from the aborted Phase 2 series in the 70s, I could clearly see when Data is assigned to be the judge advocate, how that would have been written for the Zahn character, and Kirk would have played out exactly how Picard pleaded his case in the last act. The moments with Data as judge do have a touch of Stan Laurel comedic touches to them, especially his facial grimaces. Thank you for that uh, feedback, Tim, um, and you know, elaborating more on why Family is such a great episode, um, and also about Devil's Due, which we've talked about a little bit here, and I think is a great episode that has good drama and, and great comedy, so thank you for highlighting that. Yeah, those are great episodes. Devil's Due and Clues, very good for Data, and I didn't know that uh, about the Phase 2 and... Not familiar with Zahn at all. Yeah, Zahn was a character that, so they originally couldn't get Leonard Nimoy to sign on to Phase 2 when they were going to do like kind of another TOS series in in the 70s. So they had another Vulcan character, a full Vulcan named Zahn. And so they wrote all these scripts for Phase 2. And two of them, Devil's Due and The Child, were ones that TNG adapted from Phase 2 scripts. Oh, very interesting. So it's quite an interesting history, actually, and what could have happened if they didn't end up kind of shelving that and going on to the motion picture instead. Well, Brandon Smith says, Great show. I feel like I'm re-watching TNG every time I tune into Earl Grey. Enjoyed the math moment again, Amy. Thank you for finding it. And the humming was good too. Well, thank you. It is now my goal to introduce math as a character. So thank you for that shout out. Yes. Math in every character moment episode. That's our commitment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, we are going to have a great discussion. I can feel it in my bones. I'm (laughs) sensing it, my betazoid. So we're going to be talking about some lost episodes. Justin did a great job in uh, finding some scripts. And uh, we put out on the Babel Conference uh, one of the names of the episodes. And so we're going to uh, talk about this and actually some episodes that might could have been And we want to give praise to Standard Orbit and the listeners for uh, pushing us in this direction. And just to let you know, listeners, we do listen to you. And so this episode is for you. Justin, why don't you start us off? Yeah, so I guess just a little bit. So this is inspired by some episodes at Standard Orbit. did around lost episodes. So things that were written or as scripts or outlined, but they never actually got filmed. Um, And I did some research and found some interesting ones for the next generation. Uh, The ones that we'll be talking about today, I got from a book called Lost Voyages of Trek and the Next Generation, which has, I think it's 13 different scripts that uh, were developed, but didn't end up happening for whatever reason. And the three that we'll be talking about today would have been season one episodes. So there's some interesting stuff in there for what might have been, or things that were different or picked up uh, later on. And I should also say, you know, this book had quite a bit of detail about each of these um, scripts. And so I'm going to kind of go over them in in all the detail. I tried to condense it a little bit, but I thought there was just a lot of really interesting detail in there and things that that we'd want to talk about. So I'll also say, Amy and Richard, because for some of these descriptions, it's going to take a while to get through them. Feel free to break things up and at any time just interject any of your reactions or thoughts as I'm going along, because there's some weird and wild stuff in here (laughs) so so the right (laughs) so with that build up so the first one that i picked out is called the bonding now listeners might know that there is a season three episode that's focused on wharf that's also called the bonding but this is not that episode this is something different that was written out for the first season of the next generation so i'm going to go into the description here The Enterprise has arrived in a solar system where they're trying to mediate a territorial dispute between two worlds when Starfleet contacts Picard with orders to put his mission on hold. He's to go to Omega Croton 4, where there are some civil disturbances and the Enterprise is to pick up refugees to transport to a medical base. On the way, Data explains that the planet is ruled by humanoids who are augmented by artificial intelligence, have a high level of telekinetic abilities, and supply their subjects with anything that they want. The reason for the disturbances is a mystery. The refugees are beamed aboard, and there's an older woman who separates from the crowd and goes to a room where a croton male infant is put into an air duct. 
The woman wills the life out of her body and collapses. The child in the duct makes a sound seemingly in response. The computer then emits a gust of warm air and a web-like diaper to cover the infant's bottom. Okay. Yeah, it's like, what is going on here, right? <laughs> so then there's a scene where we're told the refugees have been sent to the medical base and the Enterprise it's on is, is on its way back to the solar system where we saw them at the beginning of the episode. Something seems wrong with Worf and he doesn't seem to be himself. Back in the air duct, the infant has willed a clear container filled with formula to approach him and he begins feeding. An engineer hears the sound, enters the room, and finds the woman's dead body. Crusher studies the corpse in sickbay and tells Picard the woman was a croton who had altered her skin color blue to pass for a subject and that she willed herself to die. Picard asks her to perform an autopsy. Meanwhile, Troy discusses Worf's behavior with Data and says whatever is wrong seems to be of a very personal nature. Data agrees and offers to study Worf's behavioral patterns. Imagining a scene there (laughs) with Data just trying to study his behavioral patterns or look up Klingon behavior. Well, that's something he'd be very good at, recognizing patterns. Yes, definitely. Uh, Picard then informs Starfleet of the woman's death, saying that for diplomacy's sake, they will discuss what will happen to the body after an autopsy is performed. On the bridge, Worf warns that an ion storm is coming, but Picard says the shield should have no problem with the storm. Back in the air duct, the infant has started crying. Back on the bridge, we see the Enterprise has steered clear of the storm, which angers Picard, who wants to know why Geordi went against his orders. Geordi responds that the computer actually took control of navigation. Picard asks the computer what happened, and it responds that the child might have been injured if it went through the storm. Picard wants to know where this mysterious child is, but the computer wants to let the infant know that the humans on the ship mean it no harm. I think the computer has a special relationship with this infant somehow. Yeah. Which is a little odd. You'll see things in here because it's the first season where the computer or somebody is doing something that you don't really see them do later because they were kind of figuring out what was happening with the show at that point. At the same time, Troy and Data have discovered that the computer is sending supplies to the child and the computer then tells them the child's location. Picard tells Riker to go back to the original site and he leaves the bridge. Tasha takes the boy out of the air duct and hands him to a waiting medical officer. The boy now looks to be about 18 months old. So the idea there is that it's actually aged from the beginning when it was almost like a newborn infant. Mm-hmm. Crusher tells Picard that her autopsy showed the woman's final hours of visual imagery, which they proceed to view. This was one of the things that amazed me. Like they have the technology to view someone's final hours through an autopsy. Yeah, what is that about? <laughs> or just download some memories from a dead person? I don't know. Apparently, I think it's one of those things. Maybe they, I mean, these are by uh, by certain writers. This one was by Lee Maddox. So they were just proposing things that they thought you know the Enterprise could do in the twenty fourth century, or that medicine could do. So it's an interesting idea. <laughs> so while they're viewing this visual imagery, we see the woman at a Croton temple where she is handed an infant. The temple then explodes. She hides the child under her clothing and runs. They also find out through viewing the imagery that the child is the ruler of Croton. They're interrupted by a message saying something has happened to the child. Picard joins Riker in the pediatric center. So it's said before that there's some pediatric center they have where this infant is, where they find the boy now appears to be 10 years old. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. So shades of the child, I think, (laughs) where you have a child rapidly growing older, right? And then he speaks. He says his name is Petru and confirms he's the ruler of Croton. It becomes apparent he possesses computerized intelligence and in a tone without emotion asks for political asylum. Picard says he will consider it. Back on the bridge, the crew realizes there's massive amounts of information that are being siphoned from the computer at an incredible speed. Picard tasks Riker and Tasha with finding out who or what is doing this. They find out it's Petru and he's floating in midair in a utility corridor while absorbing information from the computer trying to imagine how they would do that in season one. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Riker orders the computer to stop giving out the information, but it refuses and explains the boy must have the information in order to complete his mission. Uh, The script then says the Crotons have been isolationists for centuries, and now their lifestyle and feeling of security has been deteriorating because of a lack of new input. This has caused the uprising by their subjects. Data says he's found the information is just being shared with the boy and not erased from the computer. Picard wonders if this may be a violation of the Prime Directive, and he contacts Starfleet for an answer. 
No, I think that's really interesting. We, I don't know if we'd seen anywhere else in Star Trek, like getting information from a computer being a violation of the prime directive or in this way, <laughs> just seems right. interesting. So then Starfleet responds, the subjects have agreed to settle with Croton if Petru is returned. Picard is told to return the boy after their survey mission is done. Apparently somewhere in here they're supposed to be doing a survey mission. It doesn't really give too many details. And that's the thing with some of these scripts. It was kind of an outline sometimes and they hadn't filled in all the details. But Right. But there's still quite a lot of detail as well. So here's where we're going to get Richard's attention. Wesley befriends Petru and takes him on a tour of the Enterprise. <laughs> Richard, you haven't stopped listening, have you? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> uh, sorry, Wesley is on the show at this point. <sighs> so Wesley's taking Petru on a tour of the Enterprise, and he shows him engineering where he sees feelings of frustration. He then sees sick bay where parents are expressing joy and love for their child. Petru tries to understand this feeling, but finds it hard to do so, although he does smile at the family as they leave. The Enterprise is in the final phase of their survey, and Data has found out what is wrong with Worf. Every 20 years, Klingons reenact their initiation right into warriorship, but Worf thinks he can't participate in the ceremony on the Enterprise. Now, there's a variation of this that happens in the Icarus Factor uh, later yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> there's but, a lot of variations that we've seen in episodes. <laughs> that, that's what's interesting. There are these things that they, that, like, they didn't end up doing the episode, but they would insert things in, in later episodes. But... How it's done is different, and you'll see how. So Worf thinks he can't participate in the ceremony on the Enterprise. Uh, Picard states he's willing to have Geordi, Tasha, and Data put together the ceremony for Worf, though he warns them about their safety given the nature of Klingon ceremonies. Why it's Geordi, Tasha, and Data as the trio, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, the... how did Geordi get involved all of a sudden? I know, because at this point, it's season one. He's basically like the navigator. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe he has a friendship with Worf. Well, and it was Troy who asked Data, so it should be Troy, Data, and Worf, you know? One would think. I mean, that's the other thing also, since this is kind of early on, I think, in rewrites or or other parts of of the writing, they might have changed some of these things as Mm -hmm. they looked at it. (laughs) But Jordi, Tasha, and Data. So then we see Wesley and Petru, who is now showing more emotion as they continue their tour of the ship. Then back to Data, Jordi, and Tasha, who have gotten their hands on pain sticks for the ceremony. And it does say pain stick, so I'm assuming they're kind of similar to what we see in the Icarus Factor. Mm-hmm. Data is concerned that attacking a Klingon with pain sticks would be like standing in front of a photon torpedo about to be launched. <laughs> 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 Which would be very yeah, true. I could see that. <laughs> okay, now get ready for this. <laughs> okay. Wesley and Petru pass by Worf's quarters where they hear screams coming from within. They find Worf is being beaten by Jordi, Tasha, and Data. <laughs> There's more. Petru moves in to help, but Wesley stops him. He explains that this moment of humiliation is one celebrated by Klingons. <laughs> okay. So, and, and the script goes on to explain that Worf tearfully thanks Jordi, Tasha, and Data because being humiliated by friends makes it, quote, the finest humiliation he'd ever experienced. <laughs> okay. I almost believe that except the part that says Worf in tears. That doesn't. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think they didn't quite know like what 24th century Klingons would be at this point or how they would react. But just the idea of having like a ceremony that's all about humility. I mean, like in a certain way in the Icarus factor, you kind of see that, but it's more about endurance. Like he's going to make it to the end of these people that are hitting him with pain sticks right. and say that mm-hmm. he succeeded. But in this, it's like they're beating him with the pain sticks. So try to imagine a scene like that. Jordi, Tasha, and Data hitting Worf with pain sticks. Anyway, (laughs) we keep going. (laughs) But that struck me quite a bit. So then, Petru is very excited to have witnessed such a demonstration of friendship. On his home world, there is nothing to compare to what he has seen as such expressions are not logical or condoned. Back on the bridge, the course is laid in for Croton just as he and Wesley enter. Petru says he doesn't want to return to his home world because he can't live in a society which doesn't express its true feelings. Picard then talks with Beverly and Wesley in his ready room. He explains that if Petru doesn't return, the situation could become extremely critical and that Wesley may be the only one who could change his mind. Of course. Of course. Well, they become friendly, I guess. 
<laughs> He's a genius in social relations here. So Wesley goes back to sickbay to convince Petru, but he doesn't get anywhere as Petru doesn't think it would be possible to convince his whole society that there is a place for emotions. Wesley and Petru return to the bridge where they find the treaty has been broken on Croton and there is a battle near the royal palace. Mm. Petru is moved by the carnage that he sees and realizes he must return to his people. He's worried, though, that they won't accept him after he has broken Croton law regarding emotions. Picard, however, wonders if there might be a loophole to the law. The boy then begins to levitate and to think deeply. He comes to the conclusion that since the planet's laws had been based on a caste system, that by making all beings equal, those laws would be voided. He feels that maybe a feeling of real brotherhood would follow, where everyone can learn, quote, the magic of emotions. Petru says goodbye to Wesley in the transporter room and beams down to the planet with the ship's computer telling him to go in peace. That's how the episode ends. Huh. So, I know it took a while to <laughs> describe all that, but I think there's a lot of interesting stuff. So, Amy, what do you think about this episode and whether you would actually have wanted to see it? <laughs> sure, I would love to see it. I would love to see anything next anything? gen. Okay. <laughs> um, I... I find it interesting um, if we could just sort of break down maybe sure, the yeah. characters, like start with Petru. Like there were a couple of things that I found interesting. This woman, are we assuming it's his mother? You know, or, it, it, yeah. it, it doesn't say. Um, and I don't know if later on they would have put in that detail. And I hadn't actually thought about that. I thought that somehow maybe it was somebody that's a servant or something, but I, I really don't know. Yeah, well, it just sort of reminded me of the Moses story where his mother, you know, puts Moses in the river and, you know, sends him away so that he, you know, won't be killed. And, you know, here's this woman making a sacrifice to save this newborn child uh, that just sort of popped into my mind. I, I find it interesting that Petru um, levitates yeah. in order to think like, wouldn't that take more energy to levitate and think at the same time? But whatever. Um, I, so I like this idea that he, that this whole, I guess, planet has been augmented with logic. It, it says augmented by artificial intelligence and that they have a high level of, I, I wonder if it's kind of like the binars that are, have like a computer on their home planet or if it's something different, but it doesn't really give specifics other than artificial intelligence. Yeah, so I guess these artificial intelligence is going to make you more logical and therefore suppress these emotions. And so I, I love, I always love that idea of logic versus emotion and how how it is that we as, you know, humans deal with that. And then we get to see it through uh, Petru and, and his race and how he's going to bring emotion to this planet and help the planet be successful. I think that's a great Star Trek idea. Okay. Yeah. And I think of these crotons almost like they've become like what we know of the Vulcans, but done it through artificial intelligence <laughs> instead yeah. of on their own way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing I was thinking of, like when they said that uh, Croton was, I guess, failing and because they didn't have enough fresh DNA and we've seen that, you know, I think, in I think it, they were saying they didn't have two. enough like fresh input, like things. To yeah. Think so about, sort maybe. of that same idea. Remember the one when the they was it season two where they needed to steal some DNA? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, it was like the perfect society, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, the perfect society. Yeah. yeah. Are you so talking about the one where they of, where they clone people? Well, that kind of idea. They they need yeah. a fresh batch of DNA. Yeah. yeah. So here they needed more info and input. <laughs> yeah. Because their input. society was failing. These isolationists. Um, it's not good to be an isolationist. That's another theme that we see. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. And your thoughts, uh, Richard? You know, all I could think about is Willow. <laughs> um it's just it it's it, it just it's like a sci-fi version of willow i mean um, how so i'm not familiar with willow yeah, i i don't think i am either oh my gosh really <laughs> you Explain. guys have never There's seen be some willow other maybe some of our listeners aren't About familiar as Kilmore. well <laughs> richard you know how much stuff i haven't seen <laughs> oh my gosh just really? like a, sh a short summer yes really <laughs> okay, so basically, it's uh, it starts. Uh, what what is that guy that plays um, 
Warwick Davis. There you go. Warwick Davis is in this movie. Val Kilmer is in this movie. Um, oh, it's a, a movie. Couple... Okay. Oh yeah, it's an actual movie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was a um, series. It's also... but go ahead. No, it, it will. It mm. anyway. Um, <laughs> um, so basically, it starts off. It's a. It's basically a dwarf finds this what they call human. It's a daikini child. Um, basically, just like what you're saying with Mo- uh, with Moses finding him on the river. That's basically how they found her. And the person who put him in there was a servant who died. Uh, was eaten by wolves or dogs or whatever. So basically, the story uh, the story is basically about getting this child to. Um, um, she's basically the the she's basically the one that's going to destroy this evil witch that has the power of all of the entire kingdom or realm or wherever they don't really spe- specify. And basically, she's the key to her destruction. I, I mean, like this child is supposedly going to bring air in, like all this peace and and ha- and happiness and all that, and that's basically what what uh, that's basically what how I saw this episode as well, just with sci-fi with a sci-fi twist on it. Mm-hmm. Um, is because I mean, Willow came out in 1988. Yeah, not not too long after they. I mean, because I think this one, the outline was submitted like in October of 87 or something like that. So it was probably around the same time yeah they were making that movie. maybe they heard the same i don't know but i mean that's how it started i mean obviously it doesn't end like that but <laughs> but like obviously willow i mean spoilers if you don't want if you're ever gonna see the movie they you know obviously kill the witch but um anyway um but like yeah that i'm surprised you guys have never seen that movie that's a um that's a george lucas uh like fan film Huh. Uh, or, or not really a fan film, I guess you. Could call it, but anyway, but like, you know, um, I think he was the one that directed. I think he I think was he was one, one of the writers. It. I think I saw. Yeah, I think yeah. so. But like, yeah, it's it's an amazing movie. <laughs> okay. All right. But like, I mean, that's how that's how I that's how I saw it. Is that you know I kept on as you were describing, it was like, oh my gosh, that sounds a lot like Willow. I mean, maybe that's the reason why it didn't air. I don't know, um, or it didn't go any further. However, lots of ideas came from this episode clearly um because yeah. obviously we're, we're i mean they recycled and and you know took a lot of ideas from this episode to other episodes so but, but i actually i actually kind of like it i would actually okay. like to see it you would have liked to see it okay yeah yeah Definitely. i think i think so too just to see how they would have done the levitating <laughs> yeah yeah no um, kidding right yeah, I think they. I'm glad to not see the computer take off on its own. I mean, we do see that later in the season. And yeah, but it doesn't even the, give you a. It doesn't even give you like, like it's telling you a command. It just says, "Well, we're going to Viridian City on the friggin' you know holiday." Are oh, you talking about emergence in season seven? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what see, I mean. Like, yeah, but but what's interesting about this one is the computer is doing is disobeying orders and doing things for this mm-hmm. alien child. Yeah. Who knows why? And and nobody right. at the end is like, oh man, we need to do a diagnostic. I know on we this need computer. to, yeah, run a level four diagnostic, you know. But yeah, why the computer would be doing that um just on the will of someone else. Yeah. It's not even I mean I think they were they were just throwing around ideas like the idea that you can like after someone dies capture the visual imagery of their last hours in an autopsy. It's like Wow, mm. that's a crazy concept that we didn't see in <laughs> Next Generation. Well, isn't it? I mean, we've sort of seen that, like with the mind meld, the Vulcan mind meld. Like after you know, just very shortly after someone dies, they do the that's Vulcan true. mind meld, and then they can see, like in Star Trek 09, you know, mm-hmm. he finds where they're having that where they're holding Pike, you know. So yeah, yeah. But I think that fresh image, I think, is sort of maybe the genesis of that. I don't know. Hmm. Okay. But it sets up Beverly Crusher to be one amazing doctor, so that's good. <laughs> oh, this is the one episode where she saved someone. Yes. Oh, oh <laughs> that's <one>. why. Oh. <laughs> and, like, how would she know that doing the autopsy that this lady willed herself to death like what what are the signs of that oh i can see like what? i don't <laughs> maybe know maybe that's the reason why it didn't work how I, do you I, I, I will don't know. maybe some... it's vi- it's visual and audio imagery and and she just says like i'm going to will myself to die to help this infant here i go no, they, they had yeah. ctv cameras you know pointing at her and, you know they yeah that's how they know <laughs> well, the viewer would know at the beginning scene but how she confirms it i don't know that's true yeah. but it's interesting you find sometimes in these like 
script outlines like logical flaws that they would have to work out later, I think. But well, and sometimes they're so specific as in what that diaper was made out of. And then other times they just gloss over, you know, I'm like, what is that web diaper thing? What's a web for, that's not going to hold anything. And who changes that diaper? (laughs) Good question. You you need a a knife or something like that and cut it. (laughs) We'll cut it open or something like that. Oh, that's pretty fun. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting to to look at these, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, so the bonding, like why would they have that title? Is it the bonding because of the wharf story that now he's bonded better with his friendship because he went through this humiliation? I think that's part of it. Um, But I don't know if the other part has to do with Petru, who has some sort of bond with the computer, apparently. Or Or maybe... Petru bonding with his and, you know, taking his rightful throne. Yeah, I don't know. And it is interesting that they rejected this one. And then in season three, they were like, oh, let's just have one that's called the bonding. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it's a good question. I hadn't really thought about where they get the, the title from. Yeah. Should we go on to the second one? Yes. Very excited for this one because yeah. this is the one that we uh, put out on the Babel conference. Um, and we had, well, thanks to Justin, we uh, asked listeners to give us a premise of what they thought Terminus would be. Um, do you want to read those now? Uh, or do yeah, you want to do actually, it after? Uh, no, actually, before I do that, I just wanted to talk about it a little bit. So this is Terminus, and uh, it's written by Philip and Eugene Price, revised by Robert Lewin and Dorothy Fontana. So I just wanted to point out Robert Lewin was a producer on season one of The Next Generation. He had writing credits on Data Lore 11001001, The Arsenal of Freedom, and Symbiosis. So he was doing some work in the first season. Nice. And of course, Dorothy D.C. Fontana was very important uh, in the history of Star Trek for being a writer on the original series, associate producer and writer for the animated series, also an associate producer and writer on season one of The Next Generation, and she also co-wrote the DS9 episode, Dax. So there were four different writers that were involved, two of which I think had some heavy involvement in season one. And as you mentioned, Amy, we did put out to the Babel Conference, and I also put out to Twitter what is this thing that's called Terminus about? And I just put out the name and who it was written by. And we got some interesting responses, and we'll see how close they get. Um, So from the Babel Conference, uh, Wes Huntington said, it probably has something to do with time travel and a wormhole. Always a good guess. I like it, yeah. (laughs) Christopher Lutz says, a murder mystery set on an interplanetary transport vessel. The Enterprise crew becomes aware of a criminal conspiracy over the course of their investigation. That's nice. I like murder mysteries. Yeah. Uh, Kay Frick says a transporter accident. Well, there's quite a few of those. (laughs) (laughs) Bring in the transporters. I love it. Brian Yates says the crew responds to a distress call from a space station on the far end of Federation space. Like that. Mm, Very interesting. Uh, Brian Irwin says an engineering terminal becomes self-aware and takes over the Enterprise. Hijinks ensue. (laughs) Excellent. And then on Twitter, we had some responses as well. Uh, do you want to read the first one, Amy? Yeah. Uh, Trekkie01D, Haley Stoddard. Hmm, something Borg-related, perhaps, or dealing with terminal illness, either among crew members or some alien race that they come into contact with. Ooh, I like that. That's very interesting, and that's coming from uh, new co-host of Standard Orbit, Haley Stoddard. <laughs> so appreciate just getting in on the fun. Uh, also on Twitter at Jill Uphill, Jill Moreland, uh, says the enterprise has a fail safe program comparable to self-destruct. If her crew has become compromised, the crew is compromised. What will we find in time, time that they don't have data must find a way to convince the ship. Everything is okay. Time. We don't have time for time. <laughs> time. They don't have. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and at D Levitt seven, nine necessary evil, Dan, he suggests searching for a lost Federation ship, starship, the Enterprise travels to the edge of the galaxy and find that the missing crew is able to bring their fantasies into existence. And the same phenomenon affects the Enterprise. Ooh, fantasies into existence. That's always interesting. Lots of interesting guesses. So 
Shall we see if any of them are close? <laughs> yes, I'm very excited. Because it's very interesting with just one word to see what people guess. Yeah. All right. So Terminus. Again, this was also from the first, was supposed to be for the first season of The Next Generation. The Enterprise is en route to deliver supplies to Binax 2, which is being considered as a starbase terminal. By the way, I don't know what a starbase terminal is supposed to be. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, assume that's where the title comes from. Anyway, a distress call arrives from Ty Norson, an old friend of Picard, who says Binax 2 is in extreme danger, but he gives no further detail. After increasing speed, scanners pick up an unidentified object approaching with its own speed increasing. The Enterprise shields are raised and the object raises its own shields. After further study, it's found the object is mechanical in nature. Everyone is concerned, except for Data, who actually smiles and then starts to laugh and says the object means them no harm. Picard asks why Data is laughing for the first time. Data has no answer and just continues to smile. The object passes the Enterprise and travels beyond the ship. So already something very jarring with Data smiling and laughing <laughs> very early yes. on. So something's up. So there's concern the object is on its way to Binax 2, but that doesn't seem to be the case. The Enterprise reaches the planet and everyone is surprised there are no life forms on the surface. An away team investigates and is still unable to find anyone. Riker is concerned something terrible must have happened, but Data disagrees and calls Riker an alarmist. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. yeah. That's something Data usually does. With Geordi's help, they find the inhabitants are safely living underground. Riker informs Norson that there was no threat to be found on the surface, and the inhabitants move back above ground. Riker and Picard try to figure out what's going on, but Norson is very uncooperative. Geordi sees waves of energy through his visor, but Norson won't allow him to investigate them. Back on the Enterprise, we see that the alien object has appeared again. It passes and begins scanning the planet. Picard contacts Riker with this information. Riker then talks to Norson, who demands protection, but then the object vanishes. Picard and Troy have a discussion where they suspect Norson is being controlled by an outside intelligence. Data and Geordi have started tracking the energy waves, and they are led to an object on the surface which is an exact replica of the one they saw before. Norson and his people and the rest of the away team join them, and no one has seen this object on the surface before. Tricorder readings are taken, and Riker suggests drilling into it to get a sample to study. Now, I have to say, I, I'm trying to remember anywhere else in the next generation where they find something and they suggest drilling into it <laughs> to get a sample. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so then Data and Norson object, but Riker overrules them. The drilling starts, but the object releases enough energy to throw everyone away from the object. They then move into hiding below the surface. Must have been quite a release of energy <laughs> to scare them that much. So then the space version of the object appears again and emits gamma rays onto the surface, which kills everyone who remained, except for one survivor who had a fever beforehand. I know it's like, oh, everybody dies on the surface. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> except for one person who had a fever. Okay, weird, right? Interesting. <laughs> the survivor is then beamed up to sickbay, and so is Data, who has started demonstrating some unusual behavior again. Data meets with Picard on the ship and admits he doesn't understand his odd behavior. He asks for and is granted permission to go to his quarters to do a self-diagnostic. Data does the self-diagnostic, but can find nothing wrong. Here, here's Richard's favorite part. Wesley visits him. <laughs> Sorry, Richard. Wesley visits him, and he suggests that he see Dr. Crusher, but Data refuses, saying the best thing he can do is to remain by himself for now. Data comes to the conclusion that he can no longer serve a useful purpose on the Enterprise, and that he must end his existence before he brings harm to anyone else. Oh, my goodness. I know. <laughs> okay. Oh. Um, you're acting weird and laughing and smiling, and it's time to commit suicide. Very odd. <laughs> Uh, Jordy then beams back and talks to Data, but neither his pleas nor those of Wesley and Dr. Crusher can dissuade Data from feeling he was responsible for the deaths on the surface. Picard restricts Data to his quarters and assigns a team of security guards to watch over him. Data says this is pointless as he can just will himself to die. Another willing to die. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of like people willing themselves to die, and I don't know if we ever find out that Data could actually do that, <laughs> but... In, in this script, it's suggested he can. Uh, Picard still asks the security guards to tell him immediately if anything changes with Data. Norson finally agrees to beam up and talk to Picard. The captain gets right to the point and asks if Norson is in an alliance with the killer object. Norson angrily says no and that his prediction of danger was correct, 
although he doesn't explain how he knew about the danger before it happened. In Data's quarters, he has closed his eyes and seems to be dead. (laughs) I I guess closing his eyes means he seems dead. Um, (laughs) And then Wesley, who had come to keep him company, begs Data not to die, and Data opens his eyes. Could you even imagine this scene? Like, Data has his eyes closed, and Wesley's, like, begging him, like, Data, please don't die, and he just opens his eyes. Um, (laughs) So Data says Wesley shouldn't be upset and that he has a favor to ask. He would like to see the stars one last time and ask to be taken to the observation lounge. He agrees and tells the guards Data is recovering. A guard accepts this and says he will accompany them. Which is odd because Picard said, you know, he should get permission for any change, but... Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So then back on the planet, Riker is stunned to find Data there, knowing that he should be on the Enterprise. He contacts Picard, who says Data is supposed to be in his quarters. A search begins on the Enterprise, and it's found that Data is missing. Wesley and the guard explain that Data eluded them while on their way to the observation lounge. Oops. <laughs> uh, Picard contacts the transporter room and is surprised to be told that no one has beamed down. Hmm. He's, he is confused, but orders Riker to have Data on the surface put in restraints and beamed aboard. When it's confirmed he is beamed aboard, Picard orders him confined to quarters. Elsewhere on the Enterprise, Data awakens as his audio sensors pick up the announcement that he's been beamed up and confined to quarters. He then weakly makes his way there and tells a surprise guard that he had escaped. Data enters his quarters and finds himself face-to-face with another Data who is almost but not exactly like himself. What? Sound familiar? (laughs) This is kind of the basis for having lore later. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, he finds himself face-to-face with another Data. So the two Datas have a conversation between themselves and are then brought to the bridge. They explain that the object on the surface is an exact duplicate of the device that created data on his homeworld and has played a large part in making Binax 2 habitable. So here, data isn't created by a human, Noonien Sung, but created by some mechanical device. Hmm. Which is very different. Yeah. Because they hadn't established, I, I think, anything about Noonien Sung early on. So they also explain there are many of these devices located at strategic points throughout the universe all doing their best to help humanity who they admire. Uh, one, <laughs> one of the devices had been destroyed by humans on a faraway planet, and a duplicate was sent to hunt for those responsible and take revenge. However, something went wrong, and that object continued in its mission to wipe out human life forms. Now, to me, that very much, <clears throat> that very much sounds like uh, V'ger trying to destroy humans, or what was the other one on the original series, Nomad, that was trying to destroy humans and the Changeling? So, mm. right. Something mm-hmm. went wrong, and it's trying to destroy humans. So the ability of the objects to communicate reached Binax 2. So I guess there's this whole web of these devices, and they're communicating to each other. And then the only way to communicate the threat was to influence Norson's thought patterns. When the message wasn't clear enough, it created a copy of data, and this version, which is called Data 2 in the script outline, was tasked with warning everyone the device was headed their way. Just then, the object returns. Data 2 suggests Picard beam everyone on the surface underground as the object finds its victims by sensing respiration and body temperature, which is why the person with the fever survived. Hmm. The crew realizes they must lure the object within range of the Enterprise so they can destroy it. And of course, Wesley ends up creating several objects with a temperature of 98.6 degrees that have a carbon dioxide shell. Data 2 beams down with the creations which lure the object out into the open and the Enterprise destroys it with photon torpedoes. The away team is beamed aboard with Norson returning to the planet and thanking Picard for all his help. Before the Enterprise breaks orbit, we see Norson and Data 2 on the view screen saying they will continue their work on Binax 2. That's the oh. end of the episode. <laughs> what do you think, Amy? Um, I, This one's weird. Um, yeah. I think... Season one, we haven't really obviously decided if Data has feelings or not, because it is very clear that he does have feelings. Or can in certain situations, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's very emotional. I'm going to kill myself. I'm not feeling good. You know, uh, so that's interesting. Um, I'm having a hard time if this is this object, which hasn't been described in any way, shape, or form. What? How are you guys imagining this object? And if they're drilling into it, is this object... What do you... When when I hear drilling, I feel like it's into the ground, but 
I don't. Well, what do you I, think this object I, is? I just thought it was something that was that like almost like a like a, a flat hard disk, like a flying saucer, almost like. But that it's not a huge object, but it says that it can create things like another data. So maybe it's bigger than that or more sophisticated. I mean, how do you imagine? Because in the outline, it really just says, say, object. It doesn't really describe it. Yeah, what do you think not it, at all. So I'm wondering how big it is. And I mean, we see a duplicate object in space approaching the Enterprise, right? So it has to be large enough that the Enterprise is not going to think it's just some rock flying through, you know? I don't know. What do you think, Richard? What would this object look like? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I was sort of thinking like <laughs> uh, Arsenal of Freedom, you know, and they have those yeah, spheres. Yeah, actually, I think this was was an inspiration for what happened in Arsenal of Freedom where there are these objects and they kind of replicate themselves and they keep coming. These yeah. devices are kind of like that. So maybe it does look like that. <laughs> yeah, and so why would... Um, if so my thought was well if they destroy the main one that's on the planet are more going to come because didn't it say there was sort of a network of them there's a whole network but i guess one's gone rogue and when they once they destroy that everything should be fine oh okay that, that's what i'm thinking and the reason why i think this data too is still on the surface is because you know everyone has died <laughs> and they have to I, I don't know do what they need to with the survivors or rebuild things but yeah it's it's kind of like, I mean, I think that uh, it feels maybe a, a little more kind of meandering in, in what happens in it than the yes. previous one. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I think I like much more having a human, Nuni and Soon, create data and have all that background instead of just some mechanical device. Yeah. Yeah. And to have lore instead of data too, maybe. But um, I mean, what do you think of this episode overall, Richard? Um, it's, it, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it seems that a lot of this script was the, was inspiration for the chrysalis and, uh, uh, entity. entity. Yeah. That's what I was oh, thinking maybe. Like, I could the see entire that. time. Cause I was like, when we were talking about transporting them underground mm-hmm. and yeah. trying to escape them, which is basically what they, well, it was a cave, but, um, but I mean, like that's. That's what I was thinking as well. Um, and then, of course, they obviously didn't get on to the crystal identity because um, it's a spaceborne, you know, whatever. Um, but, like, um, that's, the, I mean, that's ultimately what I was thinking. I mean, obviously, elements of a different stories were taken from this. But, like, I mean, that's what I was thinking is, like, it's it it sounds like the the inspiration of the crystal uh, identity is what, is what it sounds like. I mean, and then, of course, you know, the story with lore. I don't think I wouldn't have want to seen like a machine build uh, data either. I mean, it just, it sounds, I, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't sound very personable and it doesn't give like a, you know, why he wants to be more human sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, a machine that wants to help, I mean, come on. <laughs> I could see a man trying to do that, uh, trying to create machines to help other people and whatever, uh, whatever better themselves or something like that. But like, I mean, I don't know about a machine. That seems a okay. little bit far. For me, yeah. And what's the work that they're going to continue on at the planet? And it doesn't. How does... It doesn't really say what that work is. It just yeah. says you know they will continue their work. But I, I don't know. Like a lot of colonists have died. There's all these gamma rays. I don't know. Maybe it damaged some of the infrastructure, and they need to rebuild it. I I really don't know with the survivors or whoever, because there were people on the surface that died, except for that one person with a fever. But then there are also people underground at yeah. one point so i really don't know that's something that's kind of unresolved like what work are they going to do mm-hmm. and it's interesting that he's on this planet yeah and it seems pretty premature that it's like y- you know here comes the enterprise um people why are you underground there's no reason for you to you know it's like they have no context of hey maybe you should ask the people why are you underground you know oh no it's safe come up to the well, it's, it's vague too because Norson sends this distress call because his thoughts are being influenced, but he doesn't know why. He doesn't yeah. know what's going on. And they're like, oh, nothing's wrong. But maybe it was premature to tell them to go back up to the surface until exactly. they do a, maybe a broader scan of what's going on in surrounding space or something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. They jumped the gun on that one. <laughs> I think so. So I think all around we're saying there's some interesting elements that were used later, but I don't know if we would have wanted to see one like this because we like what happened with Data's backstory more in the actual series, right? Yeah. Okay. And that's interesting, um, you know, sort of comparing the two. Like, 
the first one, the bonding written by Lee Maddox. I mean, who, who's this guy? Compared he, he, to, he wrote some other TV and he was just submitting something for consideration. Yeah. And then we have Terminus that, you know, were written by, you know, pretty well known yeah. to the Star Trek. And I, I actually prefer the bonding over Terminus. Well, I mean, it would run, it would actually write data into a wall. I mean, really, you wouldn't, I mean, you know what his background is, and that's pretty much it. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, unless they find, unless they find more data like, uh, around the, the, the galaxy or something like that. I mean, I guess I could see that. But, like, I mean, it doesn't give him much of a background except for, hey, there's this, this machine. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I could see why they probably didn't use this one. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, it doesn't give him more, it doesn't give him that, like, personal touch to what he already has already. Yeah. Right, and I written. think... You know, like I mentioned before, like data has all these feelings and I don't see how a computer could create data with feelings. I mean, a computer doesn't have feelings. So that that switch, like to have a human create data, then there is, you know, in my mind, this possibility of, yeah, maybe he could because a human created him. But to have a computer create and then try to have feelings that doesn't make sense to me and then watch and watch amy's computer shut off (laughs) (laughs) oh amy oh where are you (laughs) um no and i think it's interesting because i don't think they had really decided whether data would really exhibit feelings more because i think was someone pointed out when we were talking about it before a listener pointed out you know it isn't definitively established where data says i have no emotions until season three so Mm -hmm. this early on it probably could have gone either way and there are different things that he's talking about that you could interpret either way so yeah so i prefer the bonding over terminus uh richard which one uh do you prefer would you rather see yeah i'd probably be the same the bonding over the terminus yeah 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 okay justin yeah i i think so as well although i think the wharf ceremony stuff and the bonding should have been done differently where it's not about humiliation. But other than that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they could have changed that. But yeah, I think there's a possibly a fundamental flaw with how Terminus works. Very interesting and very, I think, different than people had guessed would happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think anyone mentioned yeah. data. <laughs> well, no, but we did get uh, Brian Yates is the re- responding to a distress, a distress call, call. Yep. from a space station, a Terminus space yeah. station there Minus. you go so brian yates yeah, you're the winner ding, think, ding ding you got close good job brian <laughs> awesome all right well those are some two really interesting episodes um so justin yeah well, so what i wanted to say was you know i think i'd originally intended to pick three from this book that has 13 episodes but i mean i think it took a while to get through the summary and we also had a lot of of thoughts about what about this episode and comparing it to others and what we thought. So we'll leave it at those two, but I think if you guys want to do it, we'll have future episodes where we go into more of these scripts. Does that sound good? Yes, we want to do it. We want to do it. This is really fun. I, this is, it's very much out of the box for me. Um, cause I just really like talking about things that I've seen. Um, so I'm quite enjoying this. Excellent. Richard, you enjoy this and want to do something like this again? Sure. Yeah, we can definitely do this. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, what I really like about it is, you know, we've seen the 170-something episodes of The Next Generation over and over again. And there's a lot of great things, of course, we can always talk about. But this kind of expands into something we haven't seen before and thinking about the what-if for those episodes. So I I, I like doing that. So, yeah, I guess we'll continue doing this uh, as a series. So look for more in the future. Yeah, and listeners, let us know uh, when we post uh, some titles what your guesses will be. That was really fun. Yeah, definitely. That inserted something interesting. And I, I put out the one that had a title of an episode that we they didn't reuse later because <laughs> I thought it would be confusing if I said, what do you think the bonding's about? Wasn't that the third season? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll definitely make sure next time we have at least one that has a unique title. Well, it's been so fun going over lost episodes from The Next Generation, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. 
also, and this might be me reading way too much into this, but I feel like because Tilly ends up being so instrumental in what happens later in the Mirror Universe, part of me when I was reading this wondered if in the back of my mind, Stamets is like, I need to have one person, and Lork is like, oh, I want to make my own... Oh, Tilly, that's who you want. Yeah, okay, (laughs) sure. (laughs) To the journey! This is Jeff Foxworthy, You Might Be a Redneck If. Oh, Lord. (laughs) If you fall in love with a hologram... (laughs) You might be in a doomed relationship. If you fall in love and it never really happened... You might be in a doomed relationship. If you fall in love with someone manipulative... You might be in a doomed relationship. If you can't even remember your own name... You're definitely in a doomed relationship. (laughs) (laughs) The orb. So I'm going to destroy your computers. So if you want to fight, you're going to have to use real bombs. I hope you're ready because I'm leaving. You figure it out. But of course, trailing the Enterprise is always the Starfleet cleanup ship that comes in and yeah, cleans up the mess. Yeah, the USS Broom Sweep. Right, yeah. the USS Broom Sweep. Standard orbit. Can we not just go to just a planet and everybody has dark complexion and it's just it's not a thing? You know, it's not like a crux of the story, right? That would have been, I think, that would have been true progress. And it's not even like, oh, well, since we're going to this planet, we have to talk about race. That's the whole point of the whole story. Uh, it serves the story well, but I don't think that's a prerequisite to have a story like this. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. So, Amy, where can people contact you when you're not discussing Data's strange behavior with Worf? Well, you can find me here on the network. I co-host The Edge. That's Trek FM's dedicated podcast to discovery. I am also on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson, but my favorite place is right there on the Babel Conference. Richard, where can people contact you when you're not destroying strange alien objects? You mean like not vibrating it or anything like that? <laughs> um you guys can find me on Facebook. I pop in here and there on the Babel Conference, and I am on X. Uh, I am on Twitter. My handle is Xrazo. <laughs> uh, and Justin, where can people contact you when you're not struggling to understand why it would make sense for Worf to be happy about being humiliated? Well, I'm going to wonder about that for quite a while now, but. <laughs> When I'm not thinking about that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Currently tweeting out my Season 5 rewatch of The Next Generation. And you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, Michael Huter, and Thomas Appel. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and Earl Grey. Listeners, join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Go in peace. 
Shut up, Wesley. Great joy and gratitude. <laughs> oh my uh. gosh.